0: Welcome to the NFL 100 show from Gridiron, where we look at the 100 year history of the NFL told through its greatest rivalries. We pick a game out from each week of the season, which has historical significance. And we tell the story of that game from the perspective of the players, the coaches, the executives who went through it. This is the NFL 100 show from Gridiron. You're listening to the NFL 100 show. Will Gavin, Matt Sherry uh, alongside me, my favourite NFL historian. And uh, we are talking about the Oakland Raiders, the early days of the glory days of the Oakland Raiders in the shadow of the Super Bowl II replay coming this weekend between the Green Bay Packers and the Oakland Raiders. Uh, Matthew, was this a period of time that you enjoyed writing about for the book?
1: Uh, yeah, probably. I, I would say the kind of the 60s through the 80s are probably the most interesting era of the NFL. Um, lots of great teams, and I would say the Oakland Raiders certainly fall into that category, and as do the Los Angeles Raiders that they eventually became. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of the more more fascinating periods, and I think the man who we will talk about most in this episode, in Al Davis, is, is perhaps the most interesting figure in the history of the NFL. Ooh, interesting
0: shout well let's start off with al davis in the very early days of this team from kind of 1960
1: yeah i mean so they were they were originally called the the oakland senoras um that's absolutely love that yeah i do as well i mean that name disappeared before it probably got into existence to be honest but it was certainly the name that was originally mooted they came around in, in 1960 um alongside the rest of the AFL. Actually, to be honest, they they might never have existed were it not for the Minnesota Vikings defecting to the NFL when the new league was about to start, because that created the space that Auckland would subsequently fill. And yeah, I mean, Al Davis's history there starts in, in 63. So he arrives as the, the hotshot young coach, very much the, the Sean McVeigh era, who at just 33 was appointed head coach and general manager. Now, I guess the the reasons for that are, are the reasons for everything in Al Davis, Davis's life, which is part hustle, part genius. I mean when he first started out as a coach he would he would famously call people and refer to himself only as Davis from Syracuse in the hopes that they mistook him for, for George Davis, the Oranges as great running back. So so yeah, there were moments like that, but also he you know, he attracted the attention of some great minds because he had a great mind himself and one of those was was Sid Gilman, who he would often go to, to coaching clinics and, and listen to him speak. And, and and would then afterwards ask pertinent questions. And that caught Gilman's eye to the point that he eventually becomes the, the Chargers' wide receiver coach, very successful in that role, uh, involved in that Chargers team that was probably the greatest team in, in the history of the AFL. And and yeah, he builds this reputation that sees him sees him end up as, as the Raiders head coach and gm at that incredibly young age oversees an incredible turnaround i mean he quickly becomes one of the best coaches in football i mean they go from 1 and 13 to 10 and 4 quite quickly and yeah and and that's the whole persona of al davis then you know it attracts this incredible journey to him becoming not long after that the afl's commissioner right at the at the very peak of the the rivalry between the AFL and the NFL, they decide that they need a more combative figure and Davis fits that mold perfectly. So he does that for a little while. He's left out of the merger discussions. So, um, because they knew that he might ultimately not be the best influence in the room. And, and, (laughs) And, and that in itself is incredible. The merger happens without the AFL commissioner ever knowing about it until he finds out when the press release drops. Um, so, yeah, interesting guy. And, you know, when that merger happened, I spoke to a guy who was in the AFL offices when they found out about it. And Davis never said a word about it. But what he did do is he, he went and printed contracts off for every one of his staff signed them handed them and said those are two-year contracts uh i don't think we'll be in a job much longer but you'll still get paid for the next two years so there's stories like that and then there's other stories like dan rooney who i interviewed before he, he passed away once referred to davis as a lying creep now i'll <laughs> i mean dan rooney is is one of the nicest people i've ever spoken to barely has a bad word to say about everyone uh, about anyone sorry so Al Davis certainly divided opinion but you know he also had his fingerprints all over a a very very good in fact a great Auckland Raiders team from that period from the 60s through to to certainly the mid 1980s.
0: So yeah there was a great team across that period but it was really when the merger started to happen that this Raiders team uh, rose to prominence with their uh, AFL titles in the 67, 68, 69 and obviously the first of those led to what we now know as Super Bowl 2.
1: Yeah absolutely um, you know they, they won the AFL ahead of Super Bowl 2 obviously to be in that game and then uh, that this is a great team. I mean, this is the start of of their their championship run, really. You know, Fred Belintnikov, the wide receiver, George Blander, who was the place kicker at that time, and Willie Brown, the the cornerback, and then you know the 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 offensive lineman who really exemplify what comes next in Jim Otto and Gene Upshaw. So it was a great team. I mean, I, I guess their only failing as a team was. Uh, just as how many times have we said this already on the pod, Will? But their Furlan was really just not being quite as good as, as that Vince Lombardi Green Bay Packers team in Super Bowl two. But you know that wasn't the end of the journey. It it was for the for the coach who was in charge at the time. But the Raiders would would eventually kind of move on from this and and really really start to shine in the moulds in which they were created by by Al Davis
0: so you talked about that loss uh, to to the packers and similar to kansas city just coming up against that that unbelievable team but it was the start of something special as you mentioned all the way through to the 80s and um it, it's fair to say a lot of it was very much in the mold of al davis
1: yeah i mean davis spoke later in life about how he basically dreamed of running a sports organization from being a, a teenager and all of the influencers that created that dream show themselves in the Raiders I mean he he altered their colour scheme to match the the famous army teams the Black Knights of the Hudson he grew up idolising those teams and and he got that from that he he altered the team logo a little bit but but I guess you know the, the biggest connections to to what Davis always had in his mind's eye is is what we see on the field, and he, he really molded the Raiders around two baseball teams. It was the the New York Yankees and and the and the um LA Dodgers. Now he he considered the Yankees and their their you know their bombers, the home run hitters. He thought they exemplified power and intimidation, and he liked those traits. and And as for the Dodgers, it was all about speed, and it was about player development, and those were the those were the hallmarks of of what he built and those show themselves in, in his philosophies on the field. I mean, offensively, it was all about the, the deep passing attack first by Darrell Lamonica. And then, you know, we see Kenny Sturdler and guys like that. And, and and Davis described that his attack is like having the bomb, but being willing to drop it. And, and I, I think that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. The, the, the fascinating element is he takes a lot of these, passing elements from Sid Gilman, who was referenced earlier. And another guy who cites Gilman as his biggest influence is Bill Walsh. But what's interesting is Walsh created that horizontal attack. Davis took some of the vertical elements of the attack. And and then on defense, it's it's very similar. You know, he always used to say that the quarterback must go down early and must go down hard in the first five snaps of a game. and And that sums up the whole ethos of the Raiders. It was that attitude of wanting to attack 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 both on offense and defense so let, let's find let's get some insights from inside the building Ron Wolf, who eventually built his legend in Green Bay he spent decades alongside Al Davis so let's chat to him a little bit about first of all why Davis decided he didn't want to remain a coach because I'm sure he could have been an all-time great coach but also kind of the, the whole situation of this team being built so so heavily heavily in his image how much do you learn from a guy like that? Because, you know, he, even at that stage of his career, Al, you know, he'd had a decent length of a career. He'd worked with Sid Gilman, you know, he'd worked with some with some great people as well. I, I guess even at that that point, there was a lot to be gleaned from from his experiences.
2: Yeah, I think what he, his method of teaching was uh, more or less a picture's worth a thousand words. So what we would do is every night, for three hours, he would sit down with the coaching staff, and we would evaluate each player at each position in the American Football League—all left tackles, left guards, centers, so on and so forth. So, what what a person, certainly of my ilk, could see—you could see right away who was good, and who wasn't good, and why they were good and why they weren't good. Uh, so, and just by by that repetitive. Uh, teaching enabled me to see, uh, or to form my own opinions and determine it in my mind. And certainly, it was his way of doing it. Who could play, who couldn't play. Uh, I think the object here was uh, one. Th-
1: one thing that interests me with Al is, and I've not asked anybody else this: was there ever a thought to him returning to coaching as well? You know, he was he was the best young coach in football went off to do the AFL thing but then returned in a in a different role and I get that his fingerprints were all over the team regardless of who was coaching but did, did he ever consider returning to the sideline or was he was he just happy kind of undertaking the role he did after that?
2: No, I think it's the role he did after that uh, uh, there's no there's no question he could have coached had he desired to do so but uh, you know he was now a little bit bigger than a Uh, than a head football coach. Uh, I mean, when you think, I think Al's legacy is, when you think of the Raiders, you think of Al Davis. Yeah, And uh, that's a tremendous legacy. Uh, You know, know, there's only, I think one other team you can say that about. And uh, when you think of the Chicago Bears, you think about George Allen. Yeah. I'm not sure there's anybody else now here in Cleveland. There's a team named after a coach, but uh, uh, I mean he had he had a great he had a great run too. But uh, I think that's Al's legacy. Al's legacy is the Oakland Raiders
3: or the Raiders. Yeah, going that- to be
0: something else now. Uh, Ron Wolf speaking with us for the NFL 100 show. You're listening to the NFL 100 with uh, Gridiron Me. Will Gavin, Matt Sherry, with me as well. We're looking at the history of the successful days of the Oakland Raiders. Uh, let's. Um, that, that was Ron Wolf there speaking about the building of that team, and, and something that you asked him about there as well was this idea of uh, uh, of Al Davis as the coach. Because certainly, when you hear about the early stories, it sounds
1: like Al Davis probably could have coached this team as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me to consider how great a coach he might have been had he just focused his efforts on that, but he decided he was going to be, you know, part owner, part marketer, part everything. And I'm sure a lot of the coaches he worked with, particularly later on, would say he was heavily involved in the coaching as well. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, his best years were with were with two coaches. There was John Madden and Tom Flores. Now, Super Bowl, two, the coach was actually a guy called Johnny roach and you know he was successful in Oakland, but what happens is he he kind of gets sick i think of of having to run al davis's program and wants to be his own man and and that's the thing it took a certain type of personality to coach for davis. It took a guy who saw football the same way that he did and roach Roach never he went off to the Buffalo Bills and actually had an unspectacular coaching career thereafter um the the first guy in is to replace him is John Madden. He was perfect for this Raiders team. You know, Davis would sign a lot of reclamation projects, a lot of guys who had fallen foul in other places. You know, guys who might have had disciplinary issues and things like that. Now Madden, whereas Roach was, ultra- he would have in no way, uh, like,
0: shied away from signing Antonio Brown.
1: No, I mean they'd have signed him now after the Patriots released so him, <laughs> one hundred percent. But yeah, I mean Madden was kind of perfect for that because he, he he kind of let the guys be the guys. Roach was a real disciplinarian. So players would have to wear the, the suits before games and things like that. And, and the guys Davis signed weren't really those kinds of guys. And it just is a perfect fit. I mean, Madden becomes the fastest coach to win a hundred games, you know, he he makes Oakland a perennial playoff contender. And I mean, there, there is a frustrating spell, certainly in the early 70s, where it feels like the Raiders get beat off the Steelers basically every year in the playoffs, starting with the Immaculate Reception. But eventually in 1977, they do win the Super Bowl under, under Madden, which, you know, I guess is, is is clearly the hallmark of his Hall of Fame career in and because he, he only coached for another couple of years after that. That's the thing with Madden, an all-time great coach who actually didn't last that long. But let's let's hear about the, the ethos that Madden allowed to exist in that building from, from George Atkinson, who, you know, he summed up the Raiders in that era. Um, Terry Bradshaw described the Raiders as bad to the bone in a conversation with me. And, and Atkinson, I guess as lovely as he seems in this interview might, know, might have been very different on the field based on Bradshaw's coach um, once referring to him as the criminal element of the NFL so let, let's let just hear Atkinson tell us about the, the ethos that pervaded the building in Oakland
4: in when I came to the organization in 1968 Al Davis was the uh, GM and part owner at that time and he became the full time owner after a while but I came up under that regime and Al Al laid it out for us very easily. Just win, baby. And uh, we took that to heart. And <laughs> we knew it, that meant commitment to excellence. You know, those were things that we had all around our locker room constantly. It was embedded, it, embedded in
0: us. And uh, it becomes a part of it's obviously al davis was a huge personality and like you say those phrases will last forever what was his presence like around the building oh i mean you could feel his presence you know
4: he he was a football you got to keep in mind al was not just a a guy who was a businessman then owned the team al was a football person and he loved the game he knew the game he understood personnel uh, he was a one-man show, basically, during that time. He, was, he ran the whole thing, and Mr. D was uh, definitely a player's owner. Uh, he's, uh, the guys loved him, and uh, he loved the guys. And that
0: shows, just look at the organization. It's full of guys who used to play. What, what was the, uh, the atmosphere like on, on your unit, the culture there? A team known for big hits, a team known for, for physical football. So what was that culture like on a day-to-day basis? Uh, what was the coach? What the culture like, sorry, the, the culture of the, oh, the team. The...
4: Oh, the culture. Oh, yeah, we were aggressive, overly aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we believe, hey, take no prisoners, you know, we used to say. And uh, we took no prisoners. Uh, we, we, on game day, we hey we delivered,
0: and that's that's what it was about. Was there really a quote that that has been often repeated since? If you're not cheating, you're, you're not, not trying.
5: trying. <laughs> it's a bad thing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's how we that's how we
4: operated, and that came about as a result of in training camp. We would have you know we were in training camp for like eight weeks, and uh, to break the boredom. We would have nights where we would have certain games like air hockey or, 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 or uh, pool or whatever it was, uh, chess bad gambling and we would have tournaments and that phrase came about as a result of the games we played if you weren't cheating you weren't trying
0: (laughs) did you apply that philosophy on the field as well sometimes (laughs) Um, Sometimes. tell us just, just a couple more from me George tell us a bit about working with John Madden oh man he was a football guy
4: also and you know John knew personnel and he knew his players, and the players respected him. He respected the players. And uh, we performed. We gave him 120% on Sunday, and we gave him 100% during the week in practice. And, you know, he was a straightforward guy. He didn't pull any punches. And uh, we, we loved that about him. You know, he called it like it was. And uh, he's just a great guy, man. When it came to a coach, he, he understood the players, and the players understood him.
0: Felt like he was a guy who who let the guys be the guys who let you play exactly. quite freely. Was that I mean was was that a message that he was imparting to you that he?
4: Well, he I mean his actions showed that he let us he let us play, and uh, he trusted us and we trusted him. You know, he was our leader. He was the head coach, and he set the standard.
0: That was the criminal element of the NFL, George Atkinson. You wouldn't believe it, would you, if you actually heard him there? What a lovely, lovely man he, uh, he proved to be when we caught up with him in London recently. Um, you, you then, beyond kind of Super Bowl two, and, and when they finally do win their first Super Bowl in 76, 77, I want to say? Yeah, um, yeah, earlier.
1: 77. <laughs> yeah, there we go. It's the seventy six season, but it, it was January 77. All right, mate. Yeah, so I, you're I, exactly right. Uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> funnily enough, I understand how NFL seasons work at this point. But thanks, mate. Appreciate it. No um, the, the thing that I think people will remember from that Super Bowl, or the, or the very famous uh, memory, was, uh, was Willie Brown and that return pick six and one of those early NFL film moments that they just managed to get absolutely perfectly.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, the eyes bulging as he's racing down the sidelines. One of the, great, one of the great shots from a guy who who really summed up you know the 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 ethos again of the Raiders. I mean, Brown was 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 a reclamation project, plucked from elsewhere, who became a Hall of Fame player, one of many many to do that. And 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 I guess that was the fascinating part of this whole Raiders era is how they were able to get these misfits and piece them all together to create three championship teams. And one of those guys, I guess, the most famous example is probably um, Jim Plunger, who we will hear from a little bit later on. And I, I just want to get a let's let's put the Ron Wolf audio in here, and let's just get a sense for what type of guys that they look for specifically. And and he also talks a little bit about Plunger, who we'll we'll get onto a little bit later on as well. You guys had this great ability to find treasure, I guess, in other people's trash. You know, guys who were reclamation projects who didn't work out elsewhere, and and did in Auckland and and Los Angeles after that. I mean. What what was it about that organization that allowed you to take guys like that in, and and get completely different returns from them on the field than than other organizations had managed?
2: You, you know, so, uh, they, first of all, they were good football players, and they were a lot of that. I think would have to be from the fact that they weren't utilized properly with the previous club. Uh, now, in Plunkett's case, he was. He was beat up uh, by the time we got him. He, he had been in San, uh, New England and then San Francisco. He was he, he needed to get his body back in shape, which he was able to do early with the Raiders. Uh, but they, I think, I think essentially what it what it's all about. They were really good football players, and they, they ended up with the right football team. I'm sure you're you, you've seen that with uh, you know with your football over there in England. That, I'm sure some, some guys are uh, different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they go
2: somewhere else, and suddenly they're superstars, and that's the same thing.
0: Ron Wolf speaking to the NFL 100 show with Gridiron Me. Will Gavin Matt Sherry alongside me? So they do manage to bring Jim Plunkett in, a real reclamation project after his time in New England, and and uh, you know we'll hear from Plunkett about Wolf talking about building him back up because that that first Super Bowl appearance, uh, two very different Super Bowls. That first one being quite the Cinderella story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Plunkett. I mean, I, I guess to understand this, you need to understand what, what Plungit was before he got in the building. I mean, he, was, he wasn't he was a million miles away from um, Jamarcus Russell territory in terms of being a draft bust. It just, it hadn't worked out in New England. He'd, he'd went to your team as well, Will, the 49ers and, and flamed out there. He, he admits in the interview, separate to, to the bit we'll hear later, that he, he contemplated retiring from football. and And he ends up entering this, this situation with the Raiders in the in the 1980 season. You know, Dan Pastorini gets injured, a guy who was selected lower than him in the same draft, and he goes into this game against the, the big rival, Kansas City Chiefs, throws five interceptions, and you're thinking, well, this is a lost season for Auckland. But actually... It doesn't prove that way. They end up sneaking into the playoffs as a wild card team, and then and then become the first wild card team in, in NFL history to go on to win the Super Bowl, a, a, a title completed with a 27-10 victory over over the Philadelphia Eagles, in which um, in which brilliantly he he ends up being MVP. Plunger so yeah I mean it's just an incredible Cinderella story that that really comes from nowhere and, and and I guess contrast sharply with what comes next so you know three years later they're back in the big game again this time as the Los Angeles Raiders but Plunkett's still there but it's a totally different situation I mean this team is one of I think one of the greatest teams in NFL history, you know, that added Howie Long, their defense, they had this menacing pass rush on defense. And then late in the season, they had Mike Haynes, also a guy who had been in New England previously. I'd I'd guess with Plunkett, I haven't checked that out, but I would think that have overlapped. And, And Haynes comes in alongside Lester Hayes, the, the Stick'em crazed cornerback on the other side and t- t- together they, they form arguably the greatest quarter- cornerback tandem in NFL history I mean I, I think Hazel end up in the Hall of Fame alongside Haynes potentially this year as well and and yeah so you get this situation where the Raiders I think it was three titles in nine years maybe they end up winning by by virtue of of absolutely annihilating a Washington Redskins team who who themselves would win three Super Bowls in this era um, 38-9 in in Super Bowl 28 so yeah let's hear from Plungard he can tell us about both of those victories and the differences between the two
0: We spoke with Ron Wolfe about that period of time, and and he talked about the need to kind of build you back up. Is that something that you felt going into that side?
3: No, you never feel that way. You want to start right away. But, uh, you know, I sat down and talked with John Madden, and he said the exact same thing. We want you to sit back, learn the offense, Uh, watch how we do things here and eventually you'll get your shot and opportunity
0: and that's what happened I promise we'll focus on some positive memories in a moment but why are your memories of the first time going in for Pastorini because it it wasn't the the best first appearance as it were no it wasn't you know we were getting our
3: butts kicked by Kansas City at home Uh, things weren't going so well Uh, threw some interceptions that game Uh, got a little closer but uh, it was kind of not a great start for me uh and uh,
0: but after that things fell into place uh, how key was your relationship with with Tom Flores in that in that time
3: uh, I, uh, we were I think it was very good our association uh, me working for him under him a guy who's been there was a quarterback in the NFL and you don't get many head coaches that have been quarterbacks uh, and he understood what was going on he understood what uh, needed to be done uh, and he helped me through it quite a bit he stood by me uh, he uh, he, he, you know, he tutored me. He made me
0: a better player. And it felt like that first Super Bowl run. It was like a Cinderella story almost for you guys. It's, uh, what's a, like a Cinderella story, oh, like Cinderella a fairy story. tale. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. You know, ten years in the league at that point for me, and never hadn't been in a playoff game until that year. And we had to win three of them to get to the Super Bowl. So it was, a, you know, it was a tough road to hoe. Uh, you know, I was glad to be a part of it. Excuse me. turned my career around uh and i you know being there to help the raiders win their second super bowl was really a, a thrill for me and I, I felt somewhat vindicated after all those years
0: it's always felt like the raiders have that kind of us versus them mentality going in as the first wild card team to win it was was that the kind of message you were getting as you were going game after game
3: no i wasn't thinking that far ahead you know it says when you know whoever we're playing we got to win that game we got to go on to the next got to win that uh, and I didn't really think about it until after it was all said and done that, you know, we were the first wild card to, to get to the Super Bowl and win it, uh, uh, having won three games. And it was a hard road, you know. Uh, had some very tough games coming down to San Diego for that championship game back and forth. Uh, and uh, we were able to pull it off. And then getting to the Super Bowl, playing Philadelphia, who, you know, offensively pretty much stuffed us the first time in a 10-7 to loss to them, but you know what they say about payback, and we were ready for their whatever they were gonna bring, and uh, we took advantage of what they were doing, and, and were
0: very successful offensively. And then that second team with Marcus Allen, with Mike Haynes, you know, the talent level just ramped up. Was that the best team you ever played on, do you think? Oh, without question,
3: you know, Howie Long, Bill Piquel, uh, You know, the list goes on and on. Uh, uh, Lester Hayes, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Cliff Branch was still with us and playing tremendously. Uh, although uh, Todd Christensen didn't have a huge game, he was certainly part of the reason why we were there. Uh, and it was a great victory uh, for the Raiders. They, you know, they dominated the, the, the entire game from start to finish.
0: Jim Plunkett speaking with us for the NFL 100 show. You're listening to it with Gridiron. I've got Matt Sherry alongside me. Will Gavin uh, just hearing from uh, the great Raiders uh, quarterback Jim Plunkett, their first minority quarterback to win a Super Bowl alongside the the first minority head coach, and it was a real trait of those uh, of those Al Davis teams. As many you know, as many bits of fun and the people will poke at Davis nowadays, and and as much fun as we have with the way he built teams, particularly later in his career he was incredibly important to to the nfl not just for for you know his his achievements but actually
1: for that promoting of of minorities yeah i mean he was he was incredibly um inclusive i mean I, i would say a pioneer in that field across all areas and and i guess that feeds us nicely into our next interviewee who is amy trask um she was first employed by the, the Raiders in the early 1980s which is unheard of I mean we know we see now the the push to get females more heavily involved in the NFL well Amy Trask ended up becoming the CEO of the Raiders under Davis that's that's how important she was you know she was very similar to him in a kind of combative spirit in league meetings where she was often referred to as the princess of darkness which is just hilarious and and a fascinating interviewee as well I mean she's she's a lovely person I mean you see that when the way she interacts with people on social media but she's also you you can quickly see the hard edge at times when you're interviewing her as well and, and that legal mind that works but let's let's listen to her now talk about that talk about Al Davis but mainly talking about you know just how important he was in terms of giving I guess people who wouldn't otherwise have had opportunities the chance to to build careers in in the NFL in, in terms of your own role I mean, what does it say about Al and, and, and I think posthumously oh, posthumously you know, it, it feels like more people have focused on this certainly in the later years, but in terms of what does it say about him that he employed you in the role he did as, as a female at the time I mean we're seeing more of it now but it wasn't yeah. in vogue in the mid 80s and also what he did with, with head coaches Tom Flores Archel you know he was a visionary in, in, in those fields in a way that I think now people look back and appreciate maybe more than they did at the time
5: well, uh, you know, again, you asked and answered the question. More I apologize. Than I it's... Could. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying you were more eloquent than I will be. But I will tell you, I agree with everything you said in every respect. You know, we taught and, and you made these points. So it's I that apologize to you for repeating what you said. But you're uh, you're 100 percent right. Of course, in the mid 80s, when I first joined the organization in 83 ish, as an intern and then a year or so later as a full-time employee that was let me do the math it's 90s and what was that that was 30 something years 35 years ago yeah. so while today there is focus on and discussion about um diversity and women in sports that wasn't going on back in in, in that period of time and when you stop or when i, I want to say what you do when when i No, you know, really, everyone should stop to think about this about Al. This is a gentleman who, you know, whether you love the Raiders or hate the Raiders, whether you liked Al Davis or disliked Al Davis, he hired without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or any other individuality, which has no bearing on whether someone can do a job well before anyone else hired in that manner and so chronologically and I only do it in this order because this was the order he made these hires he hired Tom Flores as you mentioned then he hired me as you mentioned then he hired Art Shell as a head coach as you mentioned and you know when you stop to think that he hired a young woman in the mid-80s and not only afforded me the opportunity to advance within the organization, but in his own unique way, encouraged me to do so. And that really deserves more attention, I believe, than it gets. But you're right. It is, it is perhaps starting to get a bit more focused.
0: Amy Trask speaking with us uh, for the NFL 100 show. You'd mentioned to me previously about how she was uh, a little bit brassy, etc. I I, love, I really enjoyed listening to this when I was editing it because she just calls you out pretty much constantly. She's like, "Well, yet again, you've answered your own question in the question, but uh, but I will answer ha, anyway."
1: Uh- <laughs> And I it was it. a it was a fascinating interview because at the end of, at the end of the interview she and I'm not just saying this she she said to me oh that was one of the most in- enjoyable interviews I've ever I've ever had and I went it was certainly one of the most interesting I've ever done I, and, <laughs> and it, but I it, it was one of them where it, I guess the good part about it is it really became a conversation because of that and that was that was a lot of fun um, and my biggest takeaway from the overall interview was the devotion that she still has for for Al Davis like if there was any moment where I said something that maybe she considered unflattering you know she she a natural is to is to leap to his defense a little bit albeit while still seeing that the the flaws certainly later on in in his tenure and and I think there's a reason for that and and it gets on to the to the last point I'd like to make on on this episode is the Raiders more than any other team and Will you recently hosted five or six guys a at a pub in, in London, obviously. But more than any other, their alumni, um, they, they really buy into that once a Raider, always a Raider thing. And the the reason for that is what Al Davis created. I mean, there are loads of stories about ex-players who would call Davis up, end up with jobs at the organisation, and he would keep them involved. And, and that's one of the great things that they have continued since Al Davis passed away. So first of all i want to ask you actually will did you get that sense when you when you spoke to those guys in london that that was the case
0: yeah very much so and and i think it's it's exemplified actually in someone we've already heard from george atkinson who i mean i'll tell you we there was like a little green room at the back of the pub where like um so i did some stuff with their online team and then neil reynolds was doing some stuff with their their guy who presents their radio coverage and they were bringing they had a they had a a player from each decade uh, going through. So, uh, you know, George Atkinson represented the '60s. You had Jim Plunkett there for the for the '70s, and carrying on through uh, through the kind of periods of time. Every one of them, even though they came from very different eras and very few of them will have played together, all knew each other, all had like, who were incredibly friendly towards each other, all incredibly warm. Their wives and families clearly knew each other as well. And George Atkinson is someone who is now back with the team, who is now working with them as an AFC West scout, looking at their their opposition ahead of them facing them, which in itself is fascinating. I find that a really interesting role in itself. But I'll tell you, as an honorary captain, He was down on the sideline near where we were based for talk sport and he was right off to the far left and more so than John Gruden, more so than, you know, Greg Olson, more so than any of the position coaches or any of the players. He was living every single play of that comeback against the Bears in that second half. After you know, he was on the touchline. He was living every hit. He was pumping his fist. He was you know falling back in, 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 or onto his haunches, uh, destroyed when they uh, when they went behind. It just it was clear that he was so passionate still about this team, having I mean, you know finished playing what <laughs> a, a, a decades ago at this point. Um, and it really did just give an example of just how much this team's still meant to him, and I guess that's, that's the same with a huge number of their players.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's... Uh, I mean, we all like to think teams are like that, but I think the Raiders are more inclusive in that sense than any other. There's, I think Hard Knocks actually opened up with... Because you said all these guys from different eras know each other. I, I think they have an annual kind of banquet, and I think that was the, the start of Hard Knocks, if I remember rightly. So so yeah it is something that exists let's hear from from an ex-raider about that culture a little bit a little bit more jim plunker just talking about the once a raider always a raider phenomenon
0: there's that saying once a raider always a raider right. and, and it feels like with the alumni that the guys feel that about this team uh, we
3: certainly do you know i
0: played for new england for five years san francisco
3: for two and, You know, and I'm, i was very happy to be part of their organization but you know Obviously, had my success with the Raiders, uh, made a lot of friends uh, through thick and thin. And, uh, and you know, Mr. Davis is right. Once a Raider, always a Raider.
0: Just a little extra Jim Plunkett for you there at the end. Wonderful stuff, Matt Sherry. We, we, we focused, let's be fair, on the positive era of the Raiders. You know, there is there is a the, in addition to the idea of once a Raider, always a Raider. There's another phrase around this team, uh, which is uh, which is around excellence, the commitment to excellence, which is fair to say they have not necessarily displayed over the following 30 or 40 years after the period of time we've been discussing. So there's another story to tell there. But I think it's been really interesting to look back at this this period for a team that obviously are in transition again, are moving again. uh, And uh, particularly a figure like Al Davis, who is divisive, but undoubtedly important to the
1: history of the NFL. Yeah, let's concentrate on mythologizing the good parts for this one. And we, we might do one later. If anything, what you should do now, Will, is find the audio of Steve Sable singing, uh, the, the audio of Steve Sable's poem, Autumn Wind, and just play that out. That will be a lovely finale of this podcast.
0: I mean that's a wonderful thing and it's exactly what I'm going to do at the end here. Once you've told us exactly uh, what we've got coming up we've obviously tomorrow we'll have the um, we'll have the preview podcast plus the review of Thursday night football looks like a barnstormer in the um, in the same division as this uh, as this Raiders side as the uh, as the Broncos and the Chiefs go head to head this game Three weeks ago was a dreadful game on paper. Now that the Broncos have gone on a winning streak and the Chiefs very much the opposite, it suddenly becomes really intriguing. So we'll review that as well. And what have we got coming up on the old NFL 100 show for next week? Uh,
1: From Super Bowl 1 to Super Bowl... Oh, I've gotten that wrong, haven't I? Uh,
0: You were doing so well as well. I'm leaving all this in because I can't be bothered to edit it again. From Super Bowl 2
1: to Super Bowl 1. Correct, yeah. Um... So we'll, we'll speak to a, a few guys who played in that game. Bobby Bell, um, we might do a bit of Dave Robinson and Boyd Dowler again. But most importantly, I'm hoping that we're going to get Mickey Herskovitz, who worked with Al Davis actually in the AFL offices for a while, but most importantly was the man responsible on the ground in LA for actually organising the Super Bowl. He got out there a month before, he sorted all the hotels out, and I've, I've already interviewed him for the book but the audio was so bad that I had to use shorthand for the first time since journalism school um, so yeah with, I'll, I'll drop him a message and we'll try and get him on because I, I think that's a it's a different insight into into Super Bowl 1 and, and one that I hope the listeners will enjoy Wonderful stuff, Sherry always a pleasure, wonderful stuff and uh, yeah, I think you were
0: absolutely bang on let's play out with this absolute banger
4: The autumn wind is a pirate Blustering in from sea With a rollicking song he sweeps along Swaggering boisterously. His face is weather-beaten He wears a hooded sash With a silver hat about his head